Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have our newest Gills Club science team member, Dr. Alex McInturf. If you follow us on the Gills Club social media sites, if not, pause the podcast, go and like or follow all of our pages, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You'll be able to find us there. You you would see Alex's feature that we have had going on the past month learning about her research, but we are going to take a deep dive into Alex's work today. Alex is a marine behavioral ecologist out of the Big Fish Lab in Oregon State. With that, we are going to learn about her postdoc work looking at salmon sharks and as well as her work in Ireland with basking sharks as well. You will hear in the podcast Alex describing the salmon sharks as fun-sized great white sharks, and this is because they are only about six to a little over eight feet in length, and with that then they do have that classic white belly and a gray body, just like a great white shark does. Now they do look a little bit differently because they do have some speckling or dark blotches all around their stomach area as well, but people do frequently misidentify them as baby or juvenile great white sharks when they are seen. Alex also works with the basking shark, which if you do not know, it is the second largest fish in our oceans just after the whale shark, but they are harmless to humans as they are truly those gentle giants that feed on plankton. On top of talking about Alex's research, we really have a nice conversation about science communication and the importance behind it as well. And also talking about work-life balance and why it's important for your own mental health and for your own well-being to keep that balance throughout your life if you're working in science or not. So sit back and relax and enjoy our interview with Dr. Alex McInturf. Welcome everyone to another Gills Talk podcast. Today we have our newest Gills Club scientist, Dr. Alex McInturf. So welcome. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I know we had your feature uh, back in August officially. Um, I know Maddie was working with you on that. So I'm happy to be able to have you on the podcast to kind of deep dive a little bit more into what you do. So I know that you are out of the Big Fish Lab out of Oregon State. So which is really exciting. So I think we should just kind of kick it off with that. Talk about the lab, what you're doing there and that work. Yeah, Absolutely. I love talking about the Big Fish Lab or the BFL. So we have a social media account. You should definitely follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook if you want. We are a pretty new lab. Uh, the PI of this lab is Taylor Chapel. He's done a lot of work on white sharks in California for the last 20 years or so. And I think the lab started during the pandemic, actually. So I was the lab's first postdoc, which was really exciting for me. And because we're pretty new, we're still trying to sort out, you know, get some research programs off the ground. So uh, my current work is looking at salmon sharks here on the Oregon coast. We also have PhD student Jess Schulte, who's looking at seven gill sharks here. Josh Bowman, our master's student, is doing some sensory ecology with rays. Um, and so we have a lot of exciting projects going on. But I think the number one thing that excited me about this lab in particular was just the unexplored frontier that the Oregon coast offers. Very few people know that there are lots of sharks here, actually. We have a really active fishing community and folks see them all the time. And so we're now just trying to offer a centralized place where people can report their sightings and we can learn a little bit more about what's going on with sharks here as they're traveling up and down the West Coast of North America. 
That sounds really exciting. So, so you said um, you're trying to start where people can report sightings. So is that something that's up and running? Like that people that are off of the or the Oregon coast that are, are fishing, is there like a hotline or an email that they can reach out to, to the lab? Yeah, absolutely. We just got our website set up. Like I said, we're really new. So I think we got it set up a few months ago. I started in January, the website and social media were up by May. And so we are, you know, trying to go around outreaches and science communication are super critical for us, obviously. Um, and we're working really closely with collaborators at NOAA and ODFW and the fishing community here. Um, so we spend a lot of time out and about talking to people about what they're seeing on the water. And then people can certainly report sightings or any interesting observations on our website. Awesome. So is that specifically just for off the coast of or of Oregon or if they're off of Washington or Northern California, can they report that to you as well? We're trying to target primarily Oregon sightings, but that okay. being said, we do do some field work up in Washington. We work really closely with folks down in California as well. So ideally we kind of fill this really cool gap between uh, bigger research programs in places like Seattle and down in Monterey um, where we can start to pick up animals and learn what behaviors they're exhibiting as they're transiting through um, this part of the Pacific. That's awesome. It's really great to hear that there's this kind of like larger collaboration now that's starting to form in, in the Pacific Northwest, especially looking at sharks. Cause it's like you said, a lot of people know that that area is really sharky. <laughs> if it is with white sharks or what your postdoc is looking at salmon sharks. So I would love to hear more about that. I know you're doing some foraging ecology with them off of the coast. So I love to hear all about it. Salmon sharks are awesome. So yeah. I'll start by saying my PhD, I studied primarily basking sharks and seven gill sharks. And the basking shark work is something I'm continuing now. Which but... we will get into. I have questions <laughs> about that. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> basking sharks are their own unique, fascinating thing. But salmon sharks are amazing animals. And I was really excited when Taylor and I were able to come up with this project together. What I describe as a salmon shark is really, we call it a fun-sized great white. Yes. So they're closely related to white sharks. Uh, they're just much smaller, right? We're talking like six to eight feet. And so lots of times actually here, they're spotted actually right around now. So late summer, we see a lot of juveniles here. Uh, people will report them stranded. People who are in the surf will see them sometimes. And we get a lot of reports currently that are saying, oh, there's baby white sharks washed up on shore. Uh, they're more often than not a salmon shark. And salmon sharks are very cool because, again, this is this really interesting low-hanging fruit. When people ask me questions about salmon sharks or basking sharks for that matter, I tell them my answer to them is probably going to be, I don't know. We don't know. So as far as the salmon shark story, what I became really interested in during my PhD was predator-prey interactions. And I actually did some work on juvenile Chinook salmon during my PhD at UC Davis. And so for my postdoc, I thought I would kind of merge my interests in salmon, which are a really fascinating fish and of great interest to a lot of people, right, culturally, economically, and try to incorporate that into the sharks that are my passion. And so salmon sharks were a pretty obvious candidate for this study because we're trying to figure out exactly what impact salmon sharks are having on salmon um, in the, the Pacific Northwest in Alaska. And, you know, obviously people say, oh, their name is salmon sharks. Is that because they eat salmon? That must be the case, right? That's not necessarily as straightforward as it might seem, right? They are named salmon sharks because periodically they're observed at river mouths. 
um, feeding on salmon as they're out migrating or leaving the rivers to go to their ocean going life history stages. But in places like Russia, I think they're called the herring shark, right? They're, they're often just called mm. what they're eating. And so for us, it was just a really interesting idea. You know, salmon are commercially valuable. How much do we have to pay attention to what's going on from a predation perspective? You know, are we seeing that salmon sharks are actually really important and should be considered when we're managing salmon stocks, right? So a lot of times these, these stock assessments are ways to assess the populations of salmon, incorporate natural predation to some degree, but we want to refine those estimates essentially and just say, you know, do we need to be thinking about sharks a little bit more when we're trying to predict how well salmon stocks are doing in a given year? And so that's how the study sort of started. And to do that, we needed to kind of look at a few different things. First, we need to figure out if they're actually eating salmon, right? That's yeah. pretty, pretty straightforward. So right now I'm doing a lot of what we call stomach content analysis. And that's really just a fancy way of saying we're, we're dissecting their stomachs um, of individuals that have already died and trying to identify what's in them. And that's been a really fun, super messy part of my postdoc so far. And then in addition to that, that gives us an idea of what that, that shark ate within the last few days, maybe, right? So to learn what they're eating over long-term, we're doing what's called stable isotope analysis. And that's basically just taking certain tissue samples or even blood and looking at sort of the, the material signatures in there that indicate where in the food web those animals are eating. And so that's a new, both of these are new skills that I'm currently picking up as part of my postdoc. I've never done any of these things before. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really cool, steep learning curve. And I've relied on a lot of awesome collaborators to do that. So that's step one, right? What are they eating? How much of it is salmon? And hopefully we'll be able to catalog all of that um, and then expand. So once we figure out what these animals are eating, we need to figure out you know, where they're going, where might they be encountering salmon? Do they track salmon throughout the entire Eastern North Pacific? Or are they really just opportunistic predators who feed on salmon when they find them, but also eat a lot of other things? So I'm also doing some modeling, we call it species distribution modeling, trying to figure out you know, during what months of the year and in what spaces they tend to be overlapping with salmon. So it's kind of a lot of hands-on work, field work to go find the salmon sharks, and then also modeling, which you know a lot of scientists are doing increasingly more nowadays. Mm-hmm. I love that there is almost, I don't, I don't want to call it a Jenga, but it's just almost like a level <laughs> effect yeah. to, to, to it. I guess you, you could be, because if one thing goes wrong, it kind of like it all like interconnects. So it could do, yeah. do, do that as well. But I had a few questions going back to when you were first saying that people are seeing more and more juvenile sam- salmon sharks up there. So is it starting to be assumed that maybe it's a nursery in that area? for or is that going to be it and I don't know <laughs> <laughs> that's going to be an I don't know I will say you know juveniles at least as far as I've started studying them right and again I didn't do this last year for my PhD so this is pretty it's a new system for me uh, my understanding though is that juveniles are often seen at this time of year here mm-hmm. that seems to be pretty normal but certainly we need to learn more about their movement patterns the demographics that are in these area and that's like another thing that I think the BFL is trying to do is, you know, what is the composition of these populations? Are we seeing a lot of just juveniles here? Do we also see adults passing through? Um, And we could ask that question for any of the many species that are along the Oregon coastline. So certainly a possibility, but whether they're just transiting through, whether they are what we call resident, whether they're sticking around, we have no idea. So, So tagging is a huge part of what we're going to be doing here and trying to figure out 
at what times of year we expect them to be in the area, what environmental conditions, all of that. Nice. And then what type of tags are you going to be using? It depends on the project, okay. but um, primarily right now we're interested in some of the larger scale movement patterns of these animals. So we're working with satellite tags. Um, so those are tags that just connect to satellites overhead and transmit yep. location information, right? But we also have acoustic tags out for, for any receiver array that is in the water. So those can be picked up further north in Seattle where like NOAA, for example, has some arrays in the water. They could be picked up in Alaska where there are some arrays in the water and also certainly down in California. So we're really just trying to figure out what's going to best answer our research questions here and, and figure out what tags are more appropriate for which species. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And for any of our listeners that maybe are newer to the podcast and is interested in how acoustic arrays work. Uh, oh gosh, it's probably all the way back into season one. And I think season two as well. And uh, we had a few, a few scientists. So Megan Witten talks about acoustic receivers. Grace Castleberry does as well. Ashley Novak does too. So um, if you really want to learn more about them, I won't make Alex describe it <laughs> in great detail. Um, but if you do have any interest in that, go back into our earlier episodes. And we do have a few scientists that are also working in acoustic arrays as well. But then my next question that I have for you is when you're looking at stomach content analysis, is there have anything been like unexpected when you have dissected a shark? Because we do spiny dogfish dissections as education mm -hmm. for youth here. And one time we dissected a spiny dogfish and it just must have been what the fisherman was using as bait. And it was a full skate tail that was just in <gasps> the stomach. <laughs> wow, that's really yeah. cool. Yeah, we've um, had th that. Um, we've had um, the tail with the claspers attached as well, which that was wild. Yep. <laughs> I can see your face. Yeah. So um, we've just wow. had some wild things um, seen um, in our spiny dogfish dissection. So if you had anything that just like blew your mind, I know you're looking for, for salmon, but, or maybe yeah. it was just, that you were surprised just to see some salmon in there. I don't know. No, actually, uh, spoiler alert, we have not seen any salmon so far. Again, the project just started, so I'm yeah. kind of in the middle stages of this dissection, but I'm definitely getting some ideas about what to expect at this point. Uh, so that actually was a surprise in and of itself, of course. I would say we haven't had anything that cool, but one, <laughs> one thing we get excited about are the squid beaks. We've been finding mm. a lot of squid beaks. Um, and those are always really fun to find because they're just the beak. And sometimes you have the mass of flesh around the beak, but beaks and otoliths. And of course, otoliths are, are very cool to find, right? The fish in your ear bones. I had never really looked at otoliths before as a way to identify the fish species that these sharks are eating, but that is another skill I've started to pick up. So I would say nothing that cool yet, but every time we open a stomach, it's like a treasure hunt, which I love. Yeah. And I think it's also important to note that you have your PhD, but you've now just listed three different things that in your postdoc that you were like learning new skills still that it's not just when you get your PhD, you're done, you're done learning that, you know, you're learning stable isotope analysis. You're looking at autolifts and all these like really cool things to be able to further your research. Yeah. And I think that was something that I had really good mentors who suggested this to me. You know, when you're going into your postdoc, certainly you want to build on skills that you started to gain during your PhD and those are really valuable, but you also want to learn more, right? And that's kind of the fun part of doing science at each career stage is you get more confident actually in your ability to just learn things 
right? So not only are you confident in those existing skills, but you're, you know how to acquire knowledge in ways that I didn't quite know, at least during my PhD. So that's been a fun part of the postdoc. And I've learned so, so much since being here, even for the last six months. Yeah. And I think it's so interesting that, you know, you haven't been there for that long. You said for six months and you're already doing so much. You, I feel like you just like you hit the ground running. <laughs> yeah. Out, I mean, there. you have to, you, you have to, it's not a long position, right? Postdocs are weird because you're not a student uh, and you're treated and Taylor, you know, treats me as a collaborator. And that's been really, it's been a learning curve in and of itself, right? Knowing that people are coming to you with a certain level of expectation for your ability to conduct research independently. But I love it. I think it's so fun. I get to basically be a senior researcher in the lab without any of the administrative responsibilities of a supervisor. So, um, so far, it's been an incredible experience. It sounds like it, but I also wanted to get into, because I know you, you teased about your basking shark work as well. Um, and so I, that basking sharks are so cool to me. I haven't seen, seen one yet, even being here off of Massachusetts. You think I would by now, but I haven't, but I would love to hear more about your basking shark work. So I know you were looking at um, the social behavior in them as well, which is interesting to me to think that basking shark sharks would be social in some way. Yeah, absolutely. This is, Basking sharks are just incredible animals. I will say my journey with the basking sharks was not the easiest one. Uh, so I actually was recruited to do my PhD to study basking sharks in Ireland. And I came to a lab at UC Davis expecting that to be the case. And I spent three summers in Ireland during my PhD before COVID hit and saw basking sharks once during that no. time. Yeah. So that's, and you know, at the time I felt I feel like a lot of listeners might be able to relate to this, but I just felt almost like a failure. Like it was my fault. Like I wasn't doing the science well enough. And, you know, if I was just a little bit of a better scientist, maybe I could have timed it better, or maybe I could make use of that time better. And what I learned though, is that having plan B, C, D, and E is always a good idea. So I ended up for part of my PhD, not only focusing on trying to focus on basking sharks in the field, but I also ended up collaborating with many folks at NOAA on an existing basking shark sightings data set from the coast of California, which had never been published. And that was actually a huge chapter in my PhD. And that paper came out this past spring. And what I learned from doing that paper is that basking shark droughts, as I call them now, are incredibly common for that species. So it certainly had nothing to do with my inability to track them in the field. It could have very well been that they just weren't there at the time. So that was reassuring to me. But, you know, I learned a lot through that process. And that certainly perseverance pays off. I became a co-coordinator for the Irish Basking Shark Group, which is a network of researchers and volunteers dedicated to the study and conservation and education about basking sharks in Ireland. That's a pretty active role that I currently still have. And I also was able to use that Ireland knowledge that I had gained during all those summers to foster an even larger collaboration here as part of my postdoc. So now I'm working not only with my new supervisor, Taylor, but also folks at Stanford and Trinity College in Dublin um, to do a much larger scale study on basking shark energetics and behavior. And the social behavior component is one of those things. And uh, I'm happy to say that that project started in April. Yes. And we Ooh, saw new. so many basking sharks in April. We saw tons yes. and tons of them in Ireland. It was, <laughs> I, I got emotional. I definitely like shed a tear when it first happened. When I first saw my basking sharks in person in the wild, I just had a little bit of a freak out, but it was also a really special moment because 
I was on the boat with a lot of people I'd known for a long time and they kind of all knew how special that was to me. And so, yeah, so, so one of my favorite projects during the PhD that I was so excited to undertake, but never was able to given the lack of sharks was this social behavior study. And so, like I said, I did get that off the ground this year, which was incredibly exciting with the help of a lot of different collaborators. And I'm not going to spoil the results yet, but essentially okay. what, what we're trying to do is try to see, okay, so every year these basking sharks gather in what are called hotspots. So these are just aggregation locations. They show up on the coast of Ireland. Um, they're often seen feeding at the surface, right? These are these big planktivorous sharks. And so they are often just, you know, right at the surface of the water. That's how they got their name, basking in the sun. And so you can often see them when the water is super calm and it tends to be a sunny day. But what's interesting is they're not like homogeneously distributed along the coastline. It's not random. They're, they're coming in these groups or these clumps of sharks, even as they're feeding, they'll form what we call shark trains or technically nose to tail following behavior, but that's like less fun to say. So, <laughs> Yeah, so they'll follow each other around even when they're feeding. They'll do what we call parallel swimming, where they swim right next to each other, which is really unique. And, you know, as I've learned more about basking sharks over the last, I don't know, it's almost a decade now, I guess, of my life, I really got to thinking, you know, what, why are they doing that? Like, what is the purpose of them interacting in these locations? And so that kind of, you know, generated this idea of maybe it's a social behavior, maybe they're learning from each other. Maybe it's juveniles learning from adults how best to feed. Maybe it's some sort of pre-mating courtship ritual. And so this study kind of came about where we're using chat tags, which are just tags, they're acoustic tags, but they're uh, transmitters and receivers in one. So they can talk to each other. So if sharks are in proximity to each other, we can tell who's next to who, if that nice. makes sense. Yeah. And we can look at the persistence of those interactions over time. So we can say, okay, shark A detected shark B 20 times within a, you know, two hour period. And so the idea long term would be to say, okay, are they with each other all year even? Can we deploy these for a long enough amounts of time and recover them to say these sharks even traveled together when they're not in these hotspot locations? So that's a bigger study for the future, but but I was just trying to get some pilot data this year and saying, okay, when they're in these hotspots, are they always interacting with the same individuals? Can they tell who is shark A and who is shark B? And do they prefer to hang out with certain sharks over others? So this idea of shark sociality, I think has been really understudied and it's increasingly of interest, I think over the last few years, but it's really hard to study that in a system that you can't consistently observe and a species that you can't really handle, right? You can't keep them in captivity. You have to come up with really creative ways to look at those associations. And so that's what I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. And that's so interesting that you say that because it is true because there is this like kind of preconceived conception about sharks and not just for basking sharks, but really a lot of species of sharks that they kind of do their own thing, except like if they do kind of like migrate in those large groups, like black tips and hammerheads do, but being able to like, maybe learn a little bit more about them. And they're just not there, especially how you said, like, maybe they're training ju juveniles, which that is something that's not thought of, of sharks that like how marine mammals are. So it is just kind of like this path of science that really isn't touched. It's like you said, it is really hard to be able to mimic that in a lab or in an aquarium, or, you know, you can't have a basking shark in, in an aquarium. So, right. Yeah. yeah. No, it's been, it's been really, um, I would say it's been really enlightening. It's also been really cool 
because that was kind of the first project that I came up with on my own. It was, you know, when you're when you're coming in as your PhD, often you are getting some sort of structure from your supervisor. Okay, here's what the project is. Here are the grants we're applying to. And that was something I was able to brainstorm with people, but it was really something that I conceived of independently. And so for me, it's just really special to see it come to fruition. Yeah, um, I can't wait to hear even more about it. So I'm definitely going to be keeping in the loop with that. So going into your PhD, working with these different species of sharks, when you started your schooling, was it always sharks or was it something else in you? discovered something that you liked about sharks that kind of like took you on this path that you are now? Yeah, I get that question a lot because I'm actually from Ohio. So a lot of people are like, how, how did this sort of transition to this career happen? And the answer is it's always been sharks for me. Uh, I think I knew when I was like 12 that I wanted to be a marine biologist. And it's actually really funny now because my high school friends, my college friends will say, can't believe you're actually doing that still. Um, but in a really cool way, right? Like it's it's one of those things where there's a lot of people who want to be marine biologists when they're young. And, and I was one of those people and I've been very fortunate to have had the opportunity to continue along that career path. So I was targeting programs where I could work with sharks for my PhD and, and likewise for my postdoc. And certainly I think there is some value in learning about other systems, which is also why I dabbled in salmon a little bit during my PhD. But but I think for me, sharks are really what drove me to this field. And I hope to work with them as long as I can. Yeah. And I think um, very similar with me, I'm from Pennsylvania. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're neighbors and yeah. I I have the same thing. If I go home and visit or I see like a teacher from school being like, oh my gosh, like you're actually doing this very, very similar. I was really young. I was like, yeah. I want to do something with sharks. Didn't know if it was going to be on more the biology and research track or you know, what I'm currently doing now more in that informal education and science c- c- communication. But it's so interesting to see that, you know, even if you are in a spot where you do not have ocean near you, you can do it. So Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned science communication as well. And maybe we'll get to this later and maybe we won't. But for me, I think that really also drives my interest in science communication is because I came from a place where I didn't have constant access to this resource. So I learned about sharks growing up from science communicators. That was super important as part of my, you know, self-education about sharks. And so I, I now feel like it's particularly critical to continue that for other generations as well. No, um, I mean, let's get into it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think because I agree and I can say the same thing, you know, like I learned about sharks from early sh- shark week and reading books or when we did go on a vacation somewhere that had like an experience with sharks or oceans, you know, I was like, mom, dad, can we do it please? You know? And so, yeah, yeah, there's a photo I have, I have to, I'll have to, to dig, to dig it up that I have, we did a family vacation to the Bahamas and we went to the Atlantis and there they have that incredible like aquarium work there. And there's a photo of me in first grade. So I don't know how old are you in first grade, like six, seven, something like that. I'm beside a sawfish that's in the tank and I'm just like you in my face I'm like (gasps) yeah you can see it (laughs) um so but yeah no I 
yeah, I mean, if it isn't without that communication, first off, especially for someone like us that were younger, they didn't really have that access to the ocean, unless like we did a family, family vacation to New Jersey to the beach, you know, like right. we were getting it from that. And I do agree. I think it is so important to be able to continue that because there is, it is someone that's listening to the podcast or someone that's interested in sharks or oceans and they follow a bunch of scientists on Twitter and Instagram or something, you know, like that's how yeah. they're getting that knowledge and fueling their own fire. Yeah, absolutely. And, and social media is like obviously escalated as a source of information, particularly during the pandemic. Everybody's kind of turning to digital sources now to get get their information. So I think it's really critical that science communicators keep up with that type of technology as well. Um, but I think it's it's been a part of my research that I think is not often quantified or quantifiable mm -hmm. in the same way that these other metrics of research success are. So, you know, people are really focused on your publications, but I think it's really, really important to take out time as part of your day, like we're doing now, to make sure that people understand what we're working on, right? I, I sort of feel an obligation to the broader community on our planet to make sure that we are sharing what we're learning. And, and that certainly holds true in places where, you know, you are not from, right? We try to avoid parachute science at all costs. And I work in Ireland, a place where, you know, I am also a visitor. So I want to make sure that I'm working with local organizations like the Irish Basking Shark Group to disseminate that information. And that leads to so many cool things. For example, for the Irish Basking Shark Group this year, you know, we petitioned as researchers to have basking sharks listed or protected under the Wildlife Act there in Ireland, right? And that is really new. That doesn't happen for fish species over there very often, if at all. Um, and we were successful because we were able to use science and translate it to, to a format that was important to legislation. And that ended up working out really well. That was actually one of the coolest moments for my career is to say, okay, yeah, we can use science to create real world outcomes for an endangered species. That's really incredible. And I feel like science communication was the most integral part of that. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize the basking mm -hmm. sharks were in endangered species. They were classified as globally endangered in 2019. Oh, mm -hmm. see, I didn't know that. Uh, you just, you wouldn't <laughs> expect them to be because there's not a shark, I guess, because they're probably common in, in bycatch that I'm assuming just because of they're slower moving and such, but I don't know. I could be wrong on that too. Yeah. Basking sharks have a really uniquely weird history um tragic in some ways it's very parallel to the whaling industry actually so there used to be local fisheries all throughout the north atlantic and and in the west coast of the pacific or the north america which is what i found for my phd and certainly like this is no fault of folks who were involved in these fisheries at all right this was an mm -hmm. important resource for many many people particularly in the middle of the 20th century um, they often use their liver oil, for example, to light city streets in mm -hmm. Ireland. Um, but unfortunately, basking sharks can grow to be like 20 feet long and they can take 12 to 15 years to mature. Yeah. So you can imagine that taking big animals out of this population repeatedly for many years has an irrevocable impact on the ability of that population to recover. That is what we saw happening on the West Coast of, our, of the US. That's actually why we think we don't see as many sharks in California now. There was an eradication program up in on the West Coast of Canada uh, because they used to be so numerous as to be considered a pest species there. Wow. And so, so yeah, so they were eradicated systematically for many years up there. And we think we're seeing the impacts of that now. 
uh, in California, which is thought to be part of the range of that population. So in Ireland, even those fisheries still, you know, we do see them still, but we don't see as many as as used to be reported. So definitely we're seeing these these localized impacts that seem to be impacting the broader population. Mm -hmm. So it would be interesting to see now that they are protected in those waters. I know it takes a generation or two of, you know, basking sharks to be re regenerated to see that, but I'll be interested. I mean, it'll be like 30 years down the road, but, <laughs> you know, to see how those, how, how those, those impacts then take place and see how it affects that local ecosystem there. Yeah, exactly. And I think that, uh, I think that Ireland's a really unique place to do that because there are people paying attention and that's what the Irish basking shark group is for, right? There's going to be people monitoring these sightings. We're working on a project now doing that actually. Um, so we can hopefully see how well that legislation does at preventing um, harmful human wildlife impacts. Mm -hmm. I want to get into, since you do so many different things, you know, you are out on the water, you're in the lab, you are collecting data, you're processing your own data, you know, you're, you know, setting time for like science communication. So that is a lot of like multitasking, right? And being able to time manage. And is that something that you had to like learn along the way? Was that something when you started in your undergrad that you kind of like expected this since you said you always had communication in the back of your mind? Like how did that balance kind of come apart or is it just natural way of life and progressing? And we all kind of learn that balance as we go. Yeah. Time management is a really critical skill, right? I think, uh, one of the attributes of myself that I think I'm really grateful for is that I, I very organized uh, to a point where I just like, Setting my schedule for the week is really important to me. Actually, I don't know if you can see this, but I have like a project board on I my whiteboard <laughs> where I'm tracking the status of all the projects I'm working on. Science communication for me is fun. So that's something I don't mind doing when I'm, you know, not at the office or if it's something particularly critical, like the basking shark petition in Ireland, that's where I'll focus uh, for the time being. So it's really about compartmentalization and also prioritizing the time sensitive projects. I also feel though that, you know, I was very lucky. I was a student athlete in college. So learning time management skills was something that had, I've been kind of able to do my whole life because I had to, right? I was doing school and then immediately going to soccer and I was playing soccer all weekend and then I was going back to school. Mm -hmm. And so that is something that I think I luckily had a head start with when I started my PhD. It was just something that I was able to kind of do because I've had a lot of practice at doing it. But I think that's something as a postdoc now I found talking to the younger students in my lab, that's something that people are still developing. And it's something that definitely has helped me as a postdoc. But yeah, there's definitely some days where, you know, you're you're working on a project for 10 hours, or you're in the field all day, and then, you know, field work in itself is its own beast. But mm -hmm. I also think work-life balance is really critical. I, I try not to work on weekends if I don't have to, if I'm not on a deadline. Um, I have a lot of hobbies. I try to keep my work day to about eight hours, give or take, right? So for me, that's just a critical part of the way that I function. As I've learned, I love coming into the office on Monday, super refreshed and motivated and ready to go. Um, and I think that you also have to ride the waves of productivity. Some days you're feeling super motivated and you work a 10 hour day, right? And some days you're not, and you kind of slog through those eight hours. But I think it's all about being nice to yourself and realizing that you're going to have these spurts of motivation. And sometimes it's going to be a little bit harder. Mm -hmm. I love all of that. 
what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm gonna have to like save that audio file, just like play <laughs> in my head when I'm down in my dumps, when I know I'm having an unproductive day. Today has been a day of productivity for me, but I know right. it's gonna like, that's gonna come and go. And I'm so happy that you, you, you said that. Cause even someone who is like a working professional like you and I you know like I definitely get down on myself and I'm like I have so many things to do like Kristen just concentrate like but Mm -hmm. you can't and I think that is something that is noteworthy you know that's you know (laughs) that like you know you're gonna have those days and having that work-life balance is gonna make you refreshed on Monday or whatever your Monday is doesn't have to be particularly Monday but um you know like taking your weekend and your time because that's gonna then just help your workflow in, in general. So yeah, thank, thank you for noting on that. I think that's a good piece of advice for anyone that's really listening. That is it maybe not necessarily in the science field. Like that is something to take in any role that you have. If yeah. it is student, if it is barista at Starbucks, I don't know, just naming things, but yeah. 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 And I also think like, I often think right now, as I'm kind of at a crossroads in my career, what do I do after this postdoc? Do I work for NOAA? Do I become faculty? Do I become a science communicator? I still don't know, right? That's what I'm using this postdoc to figure out. But I often right now I'm thinking, okay, yes, I could be being more productive and, you know, working into my evenings, but is that going to be sustainable? And do I want to work in a job where that's expected all the time? And for me, that's not what brings me joy. Like mm-hmm. slogging like that is not how I like to work. And I don't want to be necessarily at a job where that's expected. So that's kind of what I, where my mindset is at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's great. Even in your postdoc, you know, you're trying to figure out like what avenue that you're trying to do. It just shows that, you know, it's not even afterwards, it's going to go different ways and cross and loop around with things, especially since, you know, you are in a few projects right now as well. So you never know what project is going to spark an interest to do something else. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So I think just to wrap up, I don't want to take too much of your time today. You, even though you just dropped some really great advice right there, I'm going to ask you for more. <laughs> so um, if you have any advice um, to your younger self coming up in this field, what would that be? My advice would be that imposter syndrome is a very real thing. And I think actually naming it helps me cope with it. And I've been very fortunate to have some mentors who actively talk about imposter syndrome, even you know, supervisors who I respect immensely. But I think the number one thing, you know, to combat that is to find a support network that has your back no matter what. Like I know if I'm going into a meeting, I always try to have someone in that meeting who I know is going to support me. If they disagree with my decisions, they'll, they'll do it in a very respectful way. And I think when I started in shark science, I... I had heard that, you know, it's not always super welcoming to marginalized groups, to women, to people of color, and all these other communities. And I remember thinking, that's okay, I can handle it. You know, and I think a lot of people think that. And then I realized throughout my PhD, you don't have to handle it. There are many wonderful people out there, and they might not be the the loudest voices in the room or the biggest names you see at events but they're going to make your life so much easier and they're going to make you feel valued on a day-to-day basis. And so my biggest piece of advice is finding those people and knowing who's going to be in your corner and working with them as much as you can. Mm -hmm. And I think that is great advice um, to end on for the podcast today, finding your network, finding who's going to be in your corner, because definitely having, you know, that network is going to help you 
greatly in whatever endeavor you plan on going on. So thank you so much, Alex, for this. I know um, we already plugged the Big Fish Lab on all of their social medias, but do you have any personal that people can follow you on as well? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Dr. Surf and Turf. Um, (laughs) Thank you. Um, I wanted to be surf and turf for so long, but that handle was taken until I put doctor in front of it. So that was a big perk of getting my PhD. Um, And then if you Google me, you can also find my website pretty easily. Awesome. Well, everyone, please go and follow the Big Fish Lab and Dr. Surf and Turf (laughs) on all of the social media platforms. Again, thank you, Alex, so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be part of the Gills Club. Yes, me too. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everybody.